Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are joined by Jonathan and Amanda Texera of Wallet Win. Jonathan and Amanda, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's a real pleasure to be here. And can you tell us a little bit about Wallet Win? Sure thing. So Jonathan and I got married back in 2011. And when we came home from our honeymoon, which we had our first financial fight on, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, we tallied up our debt and realized we had about $25,000 in debt between credit cards and student loans. And at the time, we were fundraising our income as missionaries with Fellowship of Catholic University students. And our take-home pay was only about $35,000 a year. So things were looking a little grim. And we just realized that you know our future is looking very tied down by this debt, unless we change the narrative here, dive in and learn all that we can about money because we didn't really know a lot growing up. And so we we dove headlong into that, learned everything we could about finances and, you know, habits around money. And in seven months, we ended up paying off all of that debt and then turned that same passion into saving for emergencies, buying our first home, cash flowing adoption to grow our family, investing for the future, and of course, giving uh, as generously as we felt the Lord was calling us. And some other fellow missionaries began to ask us, you know, what's going on? How are you guys doing this? I thought you were fundraising, you know, and we could say we are, but we've now kind of gained control over this this part of our life, and it's freeing us to serve God in what he's asking us to do instead of us being constantly limited in what we can say yes to. And little by little, we began to coach people at our kitchen table. Then we were speaking at Theology on Taps. And just next thing you know, it was kind of like a call within a call. We felt God asking us to help set the church financially free. So we discerned leaving staff with focus about after nine years of service. And within a year, we launched our business WalletWin in 2017 to help Catholics gain control of their finances so that they can get out of debt, build savings, and change the world through generosity. So that's the quick version. And I just stole the whole story from you, Jonathan. That's I don't know right. if you wanted to add anything there. We're motivated by this need that we see in families all throughout the church of fighting about money, of saying no to a lot of things uh, for their kids or what the, what the Lord is asking them to consider because of finances. We're sick of t- and tired of seeing GoFundMes to pay off student loan debt before somebody can go into religious life. Yeah, uh, We think it's a shame that a third of millennials are delaying marriage and so many couples are delaying having children and aren't open to life because of their finances. So we want to help get the finances right for our fellow Catholics so that they can open themselves up more to what the Lord's asking them to do. So what are some of the most prominent financial issues that negatively impact marriages? Mm. Where do I start? There's some of the the more obvious ones that we hear about culturally, and certainly Catholic couples aren't immune to it. But, you know, somebody who, you know, sometimes there's addiction at play, and so somebody is financially feeding that, and that's causing a lot of friction and tension. Sometimes there's 
hidden spending from a spouse. And that causes a lot of frustration and feelings of resentment. And, you know, anytime you're lying in a marriage, that is just a breeding ground for separation or divorce because you're not giving that full gift of yourself. But I would say most often in Catholic marriages that we run into, we tend to see arguments over, you know, what we should spend money on, how we should spend money, how much we should give, to whom we should give, particularly spending around the kids, just kind of a overwhelming, not on the same financial page, not because they don't want to be, because they just never were taught how to actually speak the same language. And so they're just at odds, kind of regurgitating the the habits, attitudes, and phrases that were used around money with their family of origin growing up not knowing how to actually translate that to one another and actually speak a common tongue around money. Usually the problem is, right, there's all these arguments about money. There's all these like really like tense conversations about money because they're not talking about money enough. So you might think, oh, they're, yeah, they're always arguing about money. It's because we're not talking about it enough, right? We're, we're at the transactions level. Now, uh, usually looking back on how did you spend that much or what are we, where, where, did the, where did that money go? Instead of going a little bit higher, right? You want to spend that much on that new serving platter because it's very important to have people over and to build a community. Or you just want to go buy all that new fishing gear or whatever. Yeah, maybe I just like fishing. But maybe it's because I want to spend a lot of time with my kids as they grow up. And I see fishing as a really great way to do that. But we can't get to those really good motivations if we're stuck just nitpicking and arguing over how much we're spending because we don't have enough of the picture. And so if we can zoom out in all sorts of ways, see the motivations, see the spending from maybe a higher level before we go spend it you know, by budgeting, then a lot of these problems can be resolved. And it seems like when individuals in a couple sort of bring attitudes that they learned growing up, those are attitudes about spending that they might not even necessarily realize that they have until they find themselves in the middle of the argument. Is that is that your experience? Oh, yes, too? absolutely. <laughs> for ourselves, we had to learn this early on. You know, something I kind of learned for better or for worse growing up was, you know, if you're stressed out or having a bad day, go spend money. And I had to unlearn that because that was harming our financial goals and our relationship. And so now when I ha am feeling a really stressed or something bad happened or I received bad news and the impulse is to go get a quick hit of dopamine at the store through a transaction because studies have proven that spending money gives us a hit of dopamine, I now need to go to the Lord and I need to find healthy coping mechanisms. And so that's what I should have done all along. But, <laughs> you know, until I took the time to examine that. I never would have known that. And Jonathan has his own kind of stories that you learned around money. Oh, yeah. The big one that, that kind of comes up with me is that the default answer to should we get this is a no. <laughs> because in my head, I think we just don't have enough money for the things that we want, maybe even the things that we need. Like there's just not going to be enough. So we probably can't get this thing, which is usually not true. And I don't even know how true it was when I was growing up. You know, I was just a kid, but it was just the, the feel I got from things of, of maybe getting some quick no's myself when I asked for things. And so again, it's it's like, all right, we have this, uh, maybe this initial knee-jerk instant reaction 
emotional reaction. But let me just maybe hit pause on that. I'm going to step back. I'm going to let my intellect in the driver's seat. And let's look at this rationally. Let's check the budget to see how much we have, how much we plan to spend in this this category. Do we have do we have money already set aside for this thing? Yeah. And if we do, well, then great. I can spend it and not even worry about it. Then there's going to be good things. There's definitely good things you bring with you from sure. the way of you grew I, up. I brought up the negative. Yeah. Sorry. But like, <laughs> so be aware of those so you can hold on to them. And then if you find some stuff in there you don't really care to hold on to anymore, well, yes, then let's figure out how to kind of move past some of that and, and replace it. But a lot of that work is that first step of awareness, of knowing where you're coming from. Because for, for us, for everything we think about, the way we tie our shoes, the way we spend our money, uh, you know, which leg goes in the pants first, like, it's just the way we do it. That's just normal to us. And for some of these, we don't even understand that there could be a separate way of doing it, another way of doing it. But when you have these two humans coming together, merging together to become one, wow, you start to see all sorts of different ways to do things. You get the toothbrush wet before you put the toothpaste on. Uh, you know, like all these different differences come out. And those differences in money, when they come out, they can really start rubbing on each other in not a good way. Unless we are cognizant about it and intentional about, all right, how do we actually merge this together? How do we choose how we, as a family, understand money? Yeah, and you don't really remember why you started doing things the way you currently do them. It was just some time between the age of reason and your like second or third job or something, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. And now suddenly it's being questioned. <laughs> yeah, we need to know that there's a good reason for it. There's this old joke, this couple got married and she was gonna make a roast for her husband. She saw her mom doing it all the time growing up, so she got everything ready. She got the roast off, and she chopped off like four inches from the end and just got rid of it and then put it in the pan and, and cooked it. And the husband's looking at that thinking, we just spent all that money on that roast. Why are you throwing out a bunch of it? You know, we could eat that. She goes, well, I don't know. It's just the way my mom made it and her roasts are just so good, so I'm just going to do everything that she does. So later, they're at her parents' house. It comes up, they're having roast. And, and she goes, I've always wondered, Mom, why do you cut the end off the roast? She goes, your grandmother always did it this way. She always made the best roast, and so I want to do everything just like her. Next holidays, Grandma's in town, so they ask Grandma, hey, Grandma, what does that do to make it taste so good? And the Grandma looks at her and goes, oh, no, honey, I don't cut it off because it tastes good. I cut the end off because when your grandfather and I got married, it didn't fit in the pan. <laughs> so there's, there's no good reason, right? And we fall into that so many times with a lot of our habits, especially around money. And it seems like that's a good kind of analogy for the kind of examination that needs to go on in order to avoid some of these conflicts. Are there other good ways to avoid these issues in advance? There are. The first step really is then not only being aware of what you've got, but then maybe picking and choosing what stays. So maybe evicting some of those negative things like Jonathan and I had shared. Mm -hmm. But some of the positive things we had was, you know, our parents both paid cash for vehicles growing up. They were never people that took on car loans or leased vehicles. And so we could be in agreement on that. We could throw it right back into the backpack and, you know, carry that out in our relationship. So you can kind of repack the backpack with good financial habits and beliefs around money that you've intentionally chosen to keep in your life instead of just knee-jerk reacting to everything that comes up out of what you were given growing up. 
So after that level of awareness has has kind of happened, Jonathan had mentioned earlier the budget. So deciding together what are your goals, what are your priorities, and now deciding how to spend your money and save your money and invest your money in a way that reflects those goals and those dreams. And then beyond that, I think kind of the final way to just get on the same page and to really squash a lot of those arguments and fights and tensions is to do some dreaming together. So beyond the everyday here and now, kind of sit back and discover, you know, who you are, who you believe God is calling you to be, and start dreaming. What are some of maybe those dreams that have even gone dormant in your heart that you want to see happen in your lifetime? And then from that, you can pick one or two maybe for your kind of next immediate goal. And then from that space, you're just going to be more united overall with all of your resources, you know, your time, certainly your money, your energy, where you're going to spend your Saturday afternoons as a family. If you're clear on the the direction you're moving together as a family, it's just going to make all the other conversations a whole lot easier because you're not just drifting or going through the motions or possibly going in two different directions. You're really united at that highest level. And then that's trickling down and making the money question a non-issue because you know where you're going together. You've planned and prioritized how you're going to spend and you've kicked out negative financial habits you don't want in your life. So we've found that with that three-pronged approach, a lot of couples can get on the same page fairly quickly. You know, I'm talking weeks to maybe a month of kind of implementing those things and it could radically transform how they view and communicate about money. That item you mentioned about dreaming together, occurring to me now, it's a really great practical application for couples of this thing that Thomas Aquinas talks about in the Prima Secundae of the Summa Theologiae question one, how the end, you know, our purpose, even though it's the last in the order of execution, it's the first in the order of intention. So basically, even though it's the last thing you do, it should be the first thing, or it is, whether you want to admit it or not, the first thing you care about. And so if you're actually acknowledging that together and mutually agreeing on what that last, this isn't the ultimate last thing, like man's last end, like Aquinas is talking about, but in kind of a more immediate way, these are the last things just in the limited financial realm that you can get together, realize what those last things are. Don't worry about that it's the last in the order of execution. Don't let that prevent you from thinking about it. Think about it and then work backwards from there. Yeah, and that's really it's really helpful too because we get really excited about those goals, those dreams, those, that trip we want to go on, that that lake house we want to buy someday, that new TV we're going to get in the basement, whatever it is. And so when we get excited about those, it's a whole lot easier to get excited about the smaller steps that we need to take in order to get there. It's a lot easier for me to maybe skip going out with my buddies one night because I know the money I'm going to save there, I can throw towards that big goal. Or just get one drink instead of three or something. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's easier to say no to things because you're doing it in order to say yes to the things that you really love. 
And I know where uh, listeners can find more practical resources on this stuff because your website, walletwin.com, is Catholic-friendly, and you have a lot of stuff on there, including your own podcast, The Catholic Money Show, which we'll have a link to along with the main site. And you also, when this episode is published, you'll have a workshop going on at that time, right? The Good Steward Workshop? Yes, the Good Steward Workshop we have designed to help folks understand how to be a good steward even in tough economic times. So it's like the perfect answer to the question that you asked. You can sign up, grab your spot. It's a free workshop, and you can get involved there at goodstewardworkshop.com. And if you're listening to this episode uh, shortly after it came out, it's not too late to jump in. You can sign up for it and join. So definitely check that out. We'll have links to all three of those, WalletWin.com, The Catholic Money Show, and The Good Steward Workshop, all in the episode notes. In our next episode, we will pick back up with the rest of our interview with Jonathan and Amanda because they had a lot more financial wisdom to impart given the current state of the economy. Okay, this... (laughs) is the natural human state, you know, just always a little dissatisfied, perpetually discontented, you know. I mean, (laughs) look at us. Here we are. We are in, you know, the Garden of Eden, and we can't stop fighting. And we are back with the final part of our Before Trilogy with Kara Bach. Kara, welcome back. Good to be here. Well, here we are. We talked about Before Sunset. And before sunrise, and now we were talking about 2013's Before Midnight, the final part in this trilogy of movies separated by nine years, and this movie, which came out nine years ago. And after watching this, I don't know if I want to necessarily see where (laughs) Jesse and Celine would be at today if they were to make a fourth movie. I hope it would be in a better place. That was a rough couple of hours. Yeah, compared to the first two movies, this one has largely the same structure of two people talking about their relationship on one day. But the difference is that this time there's nine years of relationship baggage that are impacting this conversation in contrast to the first two movies. We decided we had too much to say, um, so let's just get into it. So the first movie, they meet in Vienna in 1994, and then they met nine years later in Paris, and they had the second movie. And now they have been in a relationship for the last nine years, and they are on vacation with their kids in Greece. And they get a night alone because another couple is watching the kids. And we kind of get the impression that they don't have the opportunity to do this very often, as is you know frequently the case with married couples who have young kids. Except these people are not married, which we'll get into. It's revealed in your favorite of scenes, the crypto-Christian scene. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Brutal. As with the first two movies, there are some trappings of Christianity, except in this one, the attitude is more overtly hostile to Christianity, I think. I think that is putting it delicately. I think pretty much everything about Celine is more overtly hostile in this movie. Well, maybe we can start there. I feel like this movie is, it's a rough hang in part because, I mean, they're sort of hardened people. So we start off with... You know, Jesse is saying goodbye to the son that he has mentioned at the end of the second movie. So the son is a teenager now. You actually see the kid and we have a conversation with another person, which for this <laughs> series of movies is unusual. And there's like a whole opening scene that's mm-hmm. got like a lots of other people involved in it. So we, we see the son 
And then it's Jesse and Celine in the car together. And I feel like you kind of immediately, you don't necessarily get the sense that they're like mad at each other, but they have history now. And I feel like it's very palpable from the get go. It's not the nuptial bliss you might have imagined when you first saw them meet and hit it off. Yeah. Well, and I remember in the second movie, Celine sort of foreshadows the question of would we even like being together? This movie is definitely the sort of natural conclusion of her personality in those other movies. She's extremely neurotic. Lots of hints of her hardening feminism are coming out. And it feels like she has allowed all of the sort of neuroses and the things that bother her to sort of make her bitter. Yeah. She's not just a worrier. She's now kind of angry about it. You know, now that you mention that, I want to say that she had, I guess, anxiety in the first two movies, but that usually caused her to question things. Whereas this one, the the anxieties have taken such root that she's not really questioning things anymore. She has an answer Mm -hmm. for why they are the way they are and why she is sort of aggrieved. I think partly, not sufficiently, but partly I think she has some reason to be that way because Jesse, Ethan Hawke's character, we find out towards the end of the movie did actually cheat on her Mm. in spite of how romantically they got together and how ardently he felt about her in the first two movies on another book tour. He cheated on her with somebody else who fed his ego. You know, the first time I saw that, this movie, I thought, would would this guy really cheat on her? But then this time I thought, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, (laughs) for, For somebody who is this eager to talk about himself, if he goes on the road and he meets... A young bookstore worker who is in love with his whole literary project. That makes that makes more sense now. They talk a little bit in this movie, not quite as much as in perhaps the other ones, but they do sort of open the movie talking about the difference between men and women. And I feel like the guys are all sort of getting at the idea that like men really care about sex. But the part that they don't really say is that, but they, I mean, this, this story about him having the affair that they kind of are alluding to is that men really do need their egos to be sort of nurtured. <laughs> yeah. That's like a really bad way of saying it. I think the, you know, more positive spin on it is that that is a central wound for most men. If you talk to like, you know, psychologists and, you know, if you're going to like make a generalization, that seems to be like a very common wound for men is, am I important? Am I doing something that matters? And to have somebody who affirms him in that is, of course, going to be the thing that makes him feel interesting. And it's also revealed in this movie that he's sort of taken a backseat role on a day-to-day basis, even though we see, you know, he goes on these book tours. Otherwise, he's a literature professor, and he clearly doesn't think that that's prestigious. Part-time, right? It sounds like he's not teaching at the Sorbonne. Yeah, and he kind of goes where he's told and does what he's told to do. Like when they go into that shop on the way home from the airport, like he's just kind of, you know, being ordered around, which in theory is okay. If he were living sacrificially and understood what it meant to make a gift of self and was able to, you know, make a gift of, of self intentionally, that wouldn't be such a bad thing. But this isn't that. This is like a defeat that he didn't necessarily agree to. Mm -hmm. It did occur to me watching this that you get this sense that there were other moments in time where a different choice and attitude would have put them on a different trajectory. But like this is the trajectory that is the culmination of A, decisions like 
to have an affair, but also be decisions to carry hurt and to like be resentful and the way in which that sort of like deteriorates your interior disposition towards the other person. Resentment is, it's not just corrosive in the moment, but it's a down payment signifying that you want to continue corroding your relationship in the future. And you really see this play out. They've been putting in all these resentment payments for the last nine years, and now it's time to collect. The one that really hit me the most was her talking about being a mom. I mean, obviously, like, I'm also a young mom. This made me very grateful to live in the age of Instagram, where there's like so much advice that's easily accessible. But Celine, at some point, talks about the fact that like, they lived in New York for a couple of years, she gets pregnant with their twins. And as she's nearing birth, she like really wants to be home in Paris to be with her mom. Totally understandable. But at the same time, Jesse is like going through some custody battle with his ex-wife over his son. So it seems as though they're not in the same place when she gives birth. I can't imagine like just doing that by myself. I certainly can't imagine having twins without my husband being there. You know, it's not like a mystery to people now that like early motherhood is really hard. And that's a very like confusing time. And that situation is one where they both should be feeling a lot of empathy for the other. Of course, she's in a terrible situation because she's taking care of twins by herself, apparently. And like he's on the other side of the world fighting a custody battle over his son. It's not like he was just over there hanging out, you know? Which he then pretty much loses because not only did he cheat on his original wife with Celine, but he eventually does move to France. So in the court's eyes, it's going to be hard to make the case that he should have custody of his son. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, okay, they've got like a double whammy. You're just kind of seeing through Celine talking about the, the time and how lonely she was and how scared and she like she didn't know what to do. You can also kind of get this sense of the resentment that she was alone and that he wasn't there. And yeah. it's kind of like, oh, you see the seeds of the anger. And she says that at one point during the course of this movie, I never recovered from giving birth. And mm-hmm. I don't think leading up to that, he was ever sensitive to that as a possibility. And even when she says it here, I don't think he's particularly sensitive to her revealing that information now and necessarily trying to atone for that. Mm-hmm. I don't think it even it, it occurs to him that giving birth is that sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. Well, he wasn't there for it. So like, how would yeah. he even know, you know, yeah, right. in a way, they sort of like, it's kind of an interesting setup where she's communicating something that like, not only is he being sort of an obtuse guy slash obtuse Jesse, but like he truly wasn't there. So he maybe can't even fathom what it was like. Because she was alone. On the flip side, going out of your way to be as supportive as possible as a father and a husband during and after childbirth is like a down payment in a very good way. It seems like, at least the way the movie has set it up, the the phrase happy wife, happy life is like the most concretely realized here. Mm. If you're oblivious to one of the greatest threats to her happiness, which are like the wounds during and after childbirth. She in a way, responds with a lot of hardness to things that he brings up. And it feels like it's kind of rooted in this, like, you abandoned me, like, you've left me to figure everything out by myself. Or, like, Mm -hmm. here I am in the kitchen while you're out talking with your writer friends, and I'm the one who's constantly sacrificing. And on the one hand, she is 
right, we are all always sacrificing all the time. Like I remember when I was living in New York and I had three roommates and my roommates and I were all laughing that the reality of the situation is like, you always feel like you're doing more than everybody else. Like yep. everybody always feels like they're doing more than everybody else. Yep. And there's a lot of moments of that in this movie of like, I'm doing all of this and the other person is like, well, I'm also sacrificing in all of these ways. It just goes to show the ways in which you can be blind to other people's suffering and sacrifice if you aren't actively like looking for it and trying to be there for the other. I think, you know, there's something that Celine said early on that sort of hit me as this sort of core statement about how she views relationships and I think how they both view relationships. She said, we were on parallel tracks for a while, but now our paths have crossed. I'm going west and you're going east. That's when they're like in the car on the way home from the airport at the beginning of the movie. And that struck me as the key misunderstanding that everybody has in this situation. That is not what love is. Love is not parallel tracks for as long as we can keep them from crossing and then heading in opposite directions. Love is merging two tracks into one track. So it's impossible for them to even cross. And the fact that they've never realized that seems to be the root of all of their ills. Mm. In a way, they have merged, but it seems as though they weren't intentional about it, right? Where it's like, I was in New York for you, or I've come to Paris and lived in Paris for you. It's not like merging your lives together means that there will never be a discussion of like, hey, this thing isn't working for me, or I've realized I don't like this, or I've realized I want a new thing. The thing that is set is that we're going to be together, and so we're going to work it out, figure it out together. And that's like, clearly has not happened here, because there's just so much unsaid, or at least it seems as though in the past, there was too much unsaid, and they were just like, making assumptions and doing things. Right. And you know, we have a word for what It would have been if they had merged their paths intentionally. It's called marriage, which they don't do. And which their daughters tellingly, she said, our daughters asked again how we got married and I made something up. The daughters have that expectation, even though they're not they're not coming from the same spot that you and I are, Kara. Yeah. (laughs) They're not like rigid judgmental Catholics. No. And even they have some sort of instinctual understanding that that's how this should be happening. Because you're right, their paths do merge in the form of their daughters. That is how two paths become one. And marriage is the way to do that intentionally. But they can't. It's interesting, too, in the movie, as I have admired in the first two, they sort of hint at both, oh, well, it's because it's like, you know, it's in these movies. But at the same time, they made some joke about the fact that they watch movies that have nothing to do with marriage. And the girls are like, and they got married. It's like, <laughs> no, that's not what's happening here. Oh, right. She sort of writes it off as like a fairy tale. And the girls just think it happens to any two people who like care about each other. Yeah. But there's also like a winking nod of like, eh, there's like something there that they understand that it's important. Yeah. And and to this movie's credit, it really doesn't shy away from the, the consequences of divorce, like we said at the beginning with the whole segment on his son who's living in another country. So I, I think there's something there, but they definitely don't want to commit to the same sort of thinking about marriage that we would obviously commit to. Which brings me to our new segment, Tribunals and Tribulations. <laughs> Love it. (laughs) Please explain. (laughs) From time to time in movies, there are issues of marital validity that don't get examined. 
And the purpose of tribunals and tribulations is to be an ad hoc marriage tribunal to see if a marriage had been submitted to the tribunal to be declared null, how likely would it have been to be declared null? And how valid would the current marriage be? If, let's say, which they don't, but let's say Jesse and Celine did get married, right, civilly. Mm. If they had sought a declaration of nullity for his first marriage, how likely would they have been to get it? Assuming that he and his ex-wife had been married in the church. Right, right, right. Okay, okay. So, disclaimer, this segment is only meant to indicate whether the concerned parties would hypothetically have grounds to request a declaration of nullity. It does not constitute canonical advice. Marriage possesses the favor of law. Therefore, in a case of doubt, the validity of a marriage must be upheld until the contrary is proven. It is only for the supreme authority of the church to declare authentically when divine law prohibits or nullifies marriage. That is to say, neither of us are experts, so... No canon lawyers here. This is, <laughs> this is no pure, pure entertainment. And, and the purpose is not to nitpick into and somebody else's personal business. I'm not recommending like people look at everybody they know who's married and ask all these questions. <laughs> but it is helpful to understand the contours of what makes a marriage. And so I, I'm interested to look at this because in the last movie, Jesse talked about how bad the state of his marriage was. And I kept thinking, you know, if I'm a normal audience member, I'm going to think, oh, wow, it's really terrible that they have to be stuck in this situation because of how bad it currently is. That is not sufficient to declare a marriage null. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What we have to look at is the act of giving consent when they got married, because this is from the Code of Canon Law. 1057, the consent of the parties legitimately manifested between persons qualified by law makes marriage. Let me repeat that. The consent of the parties makes marriage. It's so funny to me, Kara, that when people in secular society talk about sex, they always talk about consent. And the church also talks about consent constituting like a valid sexual relationship. It's just mm. that the bar for consent is radically different. Yeah. Matrimonial consent is an act of the will by which a man and a woman mutually give and accept each other through an irrevocable covenant in order to establish marriage. All right. Now, there are lots of exceptions, like if someone's been kidnapped, right, and then they're told to give consent, that's not sufficient consent. It was done under duress. You're not allowed to do that. You can definitely get a declaration of nullity after the fact. But in this case, specifically, the following are incapable of contracting marriage. This is now canon 1095, if anybody's wondering. Those who lack the sufficient use of reason, or those who suffer from a grave defect of discretion of judgment concerning the essential matrimonial rights and duties mutually to be handed over and, and accepted. Now, I think that Jesse had a grave defect of, of discretion of judgment when he married his original wife. Because back in the second movie, he was talking about like on his wedding day, he was thinking about Celine and... This was not a flash in the pan. This had been happening for months and months. And he didn't tell his wife about this. And so she was not capable of consenting to marry a man who... Well, actually, I think the defect would be in her consent, not his. Because if she had known that he was madly in love with another woman who he was thinking about and eventually writing a book about, she probably would not have consented to marry him on the day. And therefore, she had a defective discretion of judgment. That is, if she had known it, she wouldn't have married him. Therefore, her consent to marry him didn't have sufficient, sufficient knowledge. On the other hand, Canon 1097 has this to say regarding an error concerning the person. 
An error concerning the quality of the person does not render a marriage invalid, even if it is the cause for the contract, unless this quality is directly and principally intended. So does that change What does that mean exactly, though? So the way I'm reading that is, let's say Jesse's original wife, she would not have wanted to marry a guy who was thinking about another woman on her wedding day, right? That's not sufficient unless her direct and principal intention was to marry somebody who was not thinking about another woman. I don't want to marry a cad is maybe too general, but like I thought I was getting married to somebody who understood that they were getting married to me for life. I think it has to do with the, with the role it plays in your in your intention to get married. I'm I'm going to speak in the person of Jesse's wife now. Okay. On her wedding day, whenever that was, 1997 or whatever. Now, she doesn't have to actually say this. Just This just has to be her intention. I consent to marry Jesse, who is in love with me and not in love with another woman. That, I think, is the direct and principal intention. And it's definitely, according to the narrative the movies have established, incorrect, right? Mm-hmm. That's a, a grave defect in discretion of judgment. Canon 1098 also goes on to say, a person contracts invalidly who enters into a marriage Deceived by malice, perpetrated to obtain consent, concerning some quality of the other partner, which by its very nature can gravely disturb the partnership of conjugal life. I think by its very nature, (laughs) thinking about another woman on your wedding day would disturb the partnership of conjugal life. That is a sufficient error. Kara, what do you think? I'm inclined to agree with you. I think the way that at least I had always heard it explained is like, do you know what you're actually getting yourself into with the sacrament? Yep. And like that matters. I mean, this is why marriage prep is important. It's not just like, I think, I think it can commonly be approached as, Hey, did you guys talk about your finances? And like, have you guys talked about how you're going to resolve conflict? But like those actually aren't the important parts of marriage prep. The important parts are like the only important parts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they are important. All good things to talk about. Very pro all of that. But the important stuff is actually understanding like what the sacrament is that you're entering into and the qualifications for it. And I think that's the part that here is like, do you actually understand what it means to get married and like what promise you're taking? So that that is one example. Kara, as our as our tribunal and tribulations judge, we accept your verdict. Uh, so thank you for ruling favorably <laughs> for Jesse and his first wife's declaration of nullity. I found a really helpful guide from the Diocese of Sacramento that I'll put in the episode notes that are quick references for determining grounds for nullity. And it gives like really helpful examples of different ways in which a marriage can be null and void. I'm not putting this out there so that people try and get their marriages declared null. I'm putting this out there to help people get a a more complete understanding of what makes a marriage. And in case you're like me, it'll be fun for you to read too. But that's unlikely. (laughs) (laughs) I think more people should be reading this stuff during marriage prep. Yeah. It's good to know, like, what are you agreeing to? Yeah. That concludes Tribunals and Tribulations. Let's move the conversation forward a bit. I have a yeah, question yeah, let's, for you. Let's leave, let's leave this segment. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for you, Andrew. Yes. How do you feel about, about women who might be more successful than their husband? In... Oh, dude. Do... 
That's right, it's another cliffhanger. Kara and I still had a lot more to say about Before Midnight and the Before Trilogy as a whole, so we will be back next time, not only with the rest of my interview with Jonathan and Amanda, but also to wrap up the Before Trilogy. As always, be sure to share this podcast with your friends, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now, and God love you.